I'd like you to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 17. <clears throat> Chapters 15 and 16 detail for us the final expression of the wrath of God on this earth. And as we saw last week, it's described in terms of seven bowls of wrath that are poured out. And if you notice carefully, in the final bowl, there's a cup. The final bowl is explained to us in chapter 16, verses 17 to 21. Verse 17 says, And the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air, and the loud voice came from the temple, from the throne, saying, It is done. It is finished. This is the completion of God's wrath on the earth. But if you'll notice verse 19, the last part, it says, And Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. There's one extra cup, and it's full of the fierce wrath of God. Not just God's wrath. This is a cup full of his fierce wrath, and we're told that it is reserved for Babylon the Great. Now, Babylon the Great is Satan's counterfeit system. It's always been here. It will simply be fully developed in the tribulation period. And it will be displayed in two primary aspects. There will be an ecclesiastical Babylon, that is, a church hierarchy, and there will be a political Babylon. There will be a religious aspect and a governmental aspect. And in chapters 17 and 18, we're given the specific details pertaining to Babylon and the cup that she will drink. And chapter 17 deals largely with the religious aspect of Babylon. Chapter 18 deals largely with the political aspect. Today we want to look at chapter 17. Notice verse 1. And one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me saying, Come here and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot. Now, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls comes to John, and he says, Come, and I'll show you the harlot. Now, this same thing occurs a little later in the book of Revelation, and I'd like you to just turn over a few pages to, to Revelation chapter 21 so you'll see the contrast. Chapter 21 and verse 9. And one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke to me, saying, same scenario. The message is, come here and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Quite a contrast. One of the angels who poured out one of these seven bowls comes to John and says, come here, I'm going to show you the harlot. And then a little later he says, come here and I'll show you the bride. Quite a contrast in those two. And as we'll see, they're both depicted as cities. The harlot is depicted as Babylon the Great. And the bride is depicted as the New Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from the Father. And so we have this contrast in these last few chapters of the book of Revelation. Now, the bride, as we'll discover, is the church, it's the bride of Christ. And that's what we are. Every true believer 
And Jesus Christ makes up the church, which is referred to as his bride. In Ephesians chapter 5, we have that picture painted where it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might present her to himself, a church in all her glory. And when we come to Revelation chapter 19, we're going to see that presentation. Chapter 19 and verse 7, we're going to see the marriage of the Lamb as he is wed to his church, the bride. You say, well, then who is the harlot? Well, the harlot is the antithesis of the bride. The harlot is the false church, the unfaithful church, the church that gives her allegiance to other gods. And the term harlot is used throughout the Old Testament scriptures to describe Israel when she proved unfaithful to the Lord. Here in the New Testament, it's used to describe the unfaithful apostate church. The composite of all the religiosity of men who in reality are apart from God. They're religious. They hold to the forms. They repeat the creeds. They go through the motions but they have no relationship with God. They claim a relationship with Him, but they don't know Him, they don't love Him, they don't honor Him, they don't please Him. They love and worship other things. And that's why they're described as a harlot. They are guilty of religious prostitution, unfaithfulness to God. And as we find in this chapter, she will become an organized, united, international system in the time of the tribulation. And in this chapter, we want to see three things about her. We're going to see the system exposed, the system explained, and the system extinguished. First of all, the system exposed, verses 1 to 6. And in verses 1 to 6, we're going to see six things about the harlot. Six things about her are exposed in the first six verses. We're going to see her influence, her immorality, her alliance, her affluence, her identity, and her iniquity in that order. First of all, her influence we see in verse 1. And if you notice verse 1, the angel comes to John and he says, Come here and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. She's depicted as sitting on many waters. You say, well, what are these many waters? Well, we get the interpretation in verse 15. It says, And he said to me, The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. That's her influence. Just as the true church draws together people from every race and culture and background, so this counterfeit church, this false church, draws together all the peoples of the world. This will be the one world church. The true church will be taken out of the world prior to the tribulation period. And this is what will ensue, a worldwide religious system that will incorporate all the varied religious bodies. Now, that's not very hard to imagine because the World Council of Churches is busy working toward that end today. And if you will pay attention to the newspaper, 
you will find that various religious groups are dialoguing and cooperating and uniting in various ventures. You say, well, that sounds very good. Well, it does sound very good until you look under the surface. And you find that the, the basis of unity is not the truth of God's Word. You see, the only thing that keeps us distinct is doctrinal distinctions, doctrinal barriers. And so in order to have unity, you have to drop distinctions. And when you drop distinctions, you drop truth. You see, I'm all for unity, but I'm all for unity based on the truth of God. You see, someone can stand up and say, let's have unity. Let's all believe that this is the inspired Word of God. Let's all believe in the deity of Christ and His virgin birth and His physical resurrection and His second coming. And I dare say that people will not flock to that kind of unity. But if someone stands up and says, let's forget about doctrine, that, that just causes division. Let's forget about doctrine and let's have unity based on social concerns and moral issues and emotional experiences. And that's what we see happening around us today. And it's going to continue to happen until in the tribulation we're going to see the full-blown fruition of the ecumenical movement. A one-world religion encompassing all peoples. That's the harlot's influence. And then secondly, we see her immorality. Notice verse 2 with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality, and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. Now notice a couple things. First of all, notice that her partners in immorality are the kings of the earth. Now, of course, that's not literal. The idea is that she's involved in an illicit union with the world. She's doing the very thing Christ's church has been called away from. James chapter 4 and verse 4, James says, You adulteresses, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? You see, we're not called to isolation, but we are, are called to separation from the world and the sin and iniquity of it. And yet this harlot system forms an unholy union with the leaders of the world. She's surrendering any Christian principles she may have had for money and honor and position. And God calls that immorality. And then notice the second thing here. And that is that she has an intoxicating effect on people. At the end of verse 2, it says, those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. Her immorality is her bond with the leaders of the world. She compromises to, to gain power and pomp and success. And the wine that she gains from that intoxicates her followers. And the wine would sort of be the benefits, the gravy, the luxury. And, and her followers are sort of intoxicated with that whole thing. This, this one world church is going to rise to prominence in the world and, and all of the pomp that goes with that is just going to sort of intoxicate those followers. You know, I was thinking about religion as a whole. And when you think about religion, religion is really intoxicating. It's kind of like spiritual opium. 
it puts men into a spiritual stupor. It sort of uh, just gives them sort of a feeling of security and, and sort of dulls their senses to spiritual things. In fact, as, as you look at religion as a whole, religion is not a blessing, it's a curse. It's Satan's number one method of deceit. And men just sort of get absorbed into it until they're inebriated so that they can no longer discern truth. And that will be clearly evident in the tribulation as the character of this one world church is going to be immoral. Her whole character is going to be immorality. And yet people will dutifully follow her. Thirdly, we see her alliance. And that's in verse 3. <clears throat> And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. Now the harlot is seen sitting on a scarlet beast. And this beast we were introduced to back in chapter 13. This is the Antichrist. And if you'll notice here, we won't go into the details yet because we'll see them later in this chapter on the beast here. He's... He's uh, a beast with seven heads and ten horns, and he's got blasphemous names and all of those things, and we'll, we'll see that unfolded later. We already talked about it in chapter 13. But the significant thing here in verse 3 is that she is sitting on the beast. She is riding the Antichrist. And the inference seems to be that she's in control. At least at the initial stages of the tribulation period, religious Babylon is directing the political sphere. And so this harlot church is actually ruling the nations at the initial stages of the tribulation in an alliance with the Antichrist. What's interesting to me is it says they're in the wilderness. Uh, if you go to chapter 21 where he sees the bride, it says he was taken up to a high mountain. And he saw the new Jerusalem. In order to see the harlot, he has to go into the wilderness, which may indicate to us the spiritual condition of the world under which she is ruling at this time. And then fourthly, we see her affluence in verse 4. And the woman was clothed in purple and scarlet. Those are the colors of royalty. And she's adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. Those are the symbols of wealth. And she, it says she had in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. Now if you can imagine this, she is dressed in this, these purple and scarlet robes, which in that day were especially prominent and, and uh, uh, they, were not, they were not something that everybody wore. They were the colors of royalty. And so she's set apart as royal. She also has these great symbols of wealth, gold, precious stones, and pearls around her. And this is the church. Now, this may indicate why the Antichrist is interested in carrying her, because she has so much wealth and affluence. You know, when you look at the churches today, you realize that uh, the religious systems of our day have wealth in astronomical numbers. I uh, heard the story once about the two fellows who walked into the great cathedral and looked at the, the, the tremendous gold and marble and, 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 and wealth of it all, and the, and the one fellow turned to the other fellow and said, uh, 
You know, we can't say today like Peter in Acts chapter 3, silver and gold have I none. And the other fellow turned and said, neither can we say in the name of Jesus the Nazarene walk. You know, we've got great wealth today. We're not like the early church. There's wealth in, in the church and the so-called church today. And in time of the tribulation, that's going to only escalate as this, this false system uh, aligns itself with the kings of the world and gains even more wealth as a ruling entity. And, but if you'll notice at the end of verse 4, for all her affluence, she can't disguise her sin. And it says she's got in her hand a gold cup, but in the cup are abominations and the unclean things of her immorality. She's got external glitter, but she's got internal filth. And it reminds you of the Lord Jesus when he talked about washing the outside of the cup, and inside it's full of uh, all kinds of evil and unclean and dead things. And so she has the external look, but internally she's sinful and filthy. And then fifthly, we see her identity, verse 5. And upon her forehead a name was written, a mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. Now, her identity is a mystery. The true church is called a mystery in Ephesians chapter 3. And a mystery in Scripture is something that was, was hidden in the past but has now been revealed. The true church is a mystery, so it shouldn't surprise us that the counterfeit church is also a mystery. Uh, and I think the mystery idea here, some of you have uh, this in capitals, and some of you may have the word mystery in capitals. The word mystery was really not on her forehead. Uh, the word mystery is describing her name. Her name is a mystery. And I think the idea behind that is that she won't be called Babylon, but that's actually who, she, who she'll be. Babylon will be her character. It's kind of like back in chapter 11 and verse 8 of Revelation, we have a, a similar situation. Back in chapter 11 and verse 8, speaking about Christ's two witnesses, it says, Their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Where was our Lord crucified? Jerusalem. He's talking about Jerusalem, but he calls it mystically or or. Uh, uh, spiritually, he calls it Sodom and Egypt. Well, the same thing is true of this, this harlot church in the tribulation period. Uh, this won't be the name that she takes, but the mystery is that John sees on her forehead the fact that she is really Babylon the Great. Now, what's the character of Babylon? Well, we have her character really described at the end of verse 5. It says, first of all, she is the mother of harlots. She is sort of the, the first uh, who, who gave birth to every other harlot. And if you go back to the beginning, you find that Babylon was the site of the first organized religious system against God. And you find that in Genesis chapter 11. A fellow by the name of Nimrod established the city of Babylon. And he established it this way. He gathered all the people of the earth together. And he said, let's come together and we will build a great city with a tower that reaches into heaven and we'll make a name for ourselves. And that name, which we use today to describe that city, is the Tower of Babel. 
and that evolved into Babylon and came down through the ages. And so it, she is the mother of harlots. The, the initial uh, first organized religious system against God. And what Babylon epitomizes is man's efforts for man's glory. Man building a tower, man working his way to God. And so that's one thing that characterizes Babylon, but there's a second thing, and that's at the end of verse 5. It says she is the mother of the abominations of the earth. And abominations is a, is a name referring to idolatry. Idolatry throughout the Old Testament is referred to as an abomination. And so the thing that's characterizing Babylon way back from the beginning is that she sort of initiated the idea of idolatry. Uh, in fact, you'll think about uh, Daniel chapter 3. You remember uh, Daniel was taken captive where? Into Babylon. And the king was Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar built his 90-foot gold image out in the plain. And he said everybody is to bow down and worship this idol. And so Babylon is associated with idolatry. And the Babylonian religion has been with us ever since. It's a system based on man's works, man's efforts, man's achievements, and it's also based on man choosing to worship idols rather than God. And the false church in the tribulation period will be no different. She will be the personification of Babylon the Great. Now, I don't think that this church is going to be located in Babylon. But I do think that its location is given in this chapter. And if you look down at verse 9, it says, Here is the mind that has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. Now the beast has seven heads. The woman is sitting on the beast. And he says, the woman is sitting on these seven heads, and these seven heads represent seven mountains. Now if you go to any history student and ask them what city sits on seven mountains, they'll tell you that's the city of Rome. And Rome is referred to over and over throughout history as the seven-hilled city. And in fact, if you look at the last verse in chapter 17, it says, And the woman whom you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. And there again, he associates this woman with a city. She's associated with a city, a city with seven mountains. And she is a woman who reigns over the kings of the earth. And of course, in John's time, the Roman Empire was in control. And Rome was the city that reigned over the whole earth. And so this seven-hilled city is Rome. In fact, uh, well, let me ask you this, first of all. What religious system is presently centered in Rome? Well, it's the Roman Catholic Church. And that's not a far-fetched interpretation because, in fact, you can look on page 337 of the Confraternity Roman Catholic Version of the Bible, and you will find this footnote. It says, Babylon here refers to Rome. That's the Catholic footnote on this verse. 
And Ro the Roman Catholic Church is the church that presently, everybody thinks of Rome, that's what we're going to think of. And I don't think it's hard for us to imagine that if the rapture took place today and all of the true Christians were taken out of the world, that with all the tares left in all the various churches, that the Roman Catholic Church, by far the largest, would take the lead in continuing to establish this ecumenical movement. But I don't want to leave you with the impression that I'm, I'm going to uh, bash the Catholic Church because this is not going to simply be the Catholic Church. It's just the idea seems to be that they're going to take the lead in this. But it's going to include all the leftovers, all the leftover religions. We've got wheat and we've got tares in every church. And when the rapture takes place, what's left is going to conglomerate into a worldwide religion. It's going to be centered in Rome, but it's going to include people from every denomination who are unbelievers. In fact, unfortunately, if it happened today, there would be people from Cape Bible Chapel in that church. And so let's not bash some other church. That's not the idea here, but the, but the passage seems clear that the place where this is going to happen is in Rome. That's where it's going to be centered. And so it seems, seems obvious that it's going to be the, the largest denomination, the Roman Catholic Church, that's going to take the lead in spearheading this conglomerate religious system. Sixthly, we see her iniquity, verse 6. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. Now, that's her iniquity. And, and if you go back in history, you find that the Babylonian system down through the ages has been the spawning ground for the persecution and slaughter of God's people. It'll be no different in this future Babylon. The, the greatest persecution on the church has always come from other religious systems and false religious systems and liberal religious systems. And the harlot church will take the lead in persecuting and putting to death the saints in the tribulation as well. In fact, John sees this vivid picture of her being drunk with their blood. And so, there we see the system exposed. Her influence is worldwide. Her immorality is an illicit union with the world. Her alliance is with the beast. Her affluence is great wealth. Her identity is the Babylonian system centered in Rome. Her iniquity, she will be murdering God's saints. And then secondly, we see the system explained in verses 7 to 13. Notice the end of verse 6. And when I saw her, I wondered greatly. John saw this and he's got some questions. And so, verse 7, And the angel said to me, Why do you wonder? I shall tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The angel says, Here comes the explanation. Verse 8. And we've covered these verses when we looked at chapter 13, so we're going to go through them rather briskly this morning. Verse 8. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. Now that's a reference to the Antichrist. If you go back to chapter 13, verse 3, and also verse 14, it describes him as the one who had the fatal wound and has come back to life. 
The one who had the wound of the sword and has come back to life. And so here it makes a reference to him. And it says he was, is not, and is about to come out, out of the abyss and go to destruction. Now some have taken this phrase that he comes out of the abyss to describe the idea that uh, when he has this resurrection that actually Satan is going to embody the Antichrist at that point. He comes out of the abyss and ultimately will go to destruction. Then verse 9, which we also read, Here is the mind which has wisdom, the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits, the city of Rome. Verse 10, And they are seven kings. Not only are they seven mountains, they are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come. Now, what he's making reference here to are seven kings who will be or have been kings of world empires. And we can go back in history and trace them. There have been uh, seven throughout the course of history. First, Egypt, then Assyria, then Babylon, then Persia, and then Greece. And he says five have fallen. Those are the first five. He says one is... And as John writes in 95 A.D., the one who was was Rome at the present time. And then he said, one is to come. And then verse 11 says, And the beast which was and is not himself, is himself also an eighth, but he's one of the seven. And he goes to destruction. So there's a kingdom to come, one more to come, and the, the, the uh, Antichrist, the beast, is actually going to be an eighth kingdom, but he's really going to be part of the seven. And then notice verse 12, and it says, And the ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom. And so the ten horns represent ten kings. That's the kingdom that is to come. They haven't received it yet. And when they receive it, they will receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. Verse 13, These have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. And so the kingdom that com that's coming is a ten-kingdom confederacy. That's the way it's going to start out. And then they are going to give their authority to the beast, who's, who's really the eighth, but he's part of the seven because he's really going to reign over this ten-kingdom confederacy, which we saw back in chapter 13 is really a reference to the revived Roman Empire. And so there's the system explained very quickly. Uh, the harlot, this one-world religion, will be situated in Rome and supported by the beast who will head up this revived Roman Empire. And as we've said, if you'll watch the papers today, you'll really see that the European community is gathering steam and they're coming together. And that's what he's talking about here. And then we see the system extinguished in verses 14 to 18. And this is kind of refreshing. First of all, we see the fall of political Babylon. Verse 14. These will wage war with the Lamb and the Lamb will overcome them. And that's a reference to the battle of Armageddon, referred to back in chapter 16 and verse 16. They will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them. And why will He overcome them? Notice, because He is Lord of lords and King of kings. I like that. It just says He's going to overcome them. Why? Because of who He is. He's Lord of lords, and He's King of kings. And we really don't need any more explanation than that. When we realize who he is, it's absurd for them to be making war against him. And in chapter 19 and verse 11, we're going to see that he's going to come out of heaven and tread them down in the winepress of the wrath of God. 
But notice the end of verse 14. Notice who's with him. And those who are with him are the called and the chosen and the faithful. Who's that? That's us. Now, that's kind of exciting. When we get to chapter 19, we're going to find out from verse 14 that when Jesus comes back, he's going to come. The, 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 the picture is of him coming out of heaven on, riding on a white horse. And then it says, we're going to come with him riding on white horses. Now, that's kind of exciting to me. And here we're referred to as the called and the chosen and the faithful in contrast to this harlot system, which is unfaithful. And of course, we have nothing to gloat about in that. It's the Lord Jesus who has made us. He called us. He chose us. He's made us faithful. And then verse 15, we see that postscript, which interprets verse 1, the waters which you saw are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. And then in verse 16, we, we see the fall of the religious Babylon. Verse 16, and the ten horns which you saw and the beast, that's his kingdom, these will hate the harlot and will make her desolate and naked and will eat her flesh and will burn her up with fire. Now halfway through the tribulation period, the beast is going to get tired of carrying this false religious system and he's going to gobble it up. And the reason is because he can't stand the competition. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 4, it says he's going to oppose and exalt himself above every so-called God or object of worship, and he's going to take his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. In the first half of the tribulation, he's going to carry this religious system to prominence. Halfway through, <clears throat> he's going to throw her off and destroy her, and he's going to set himself up to be worshipped in the temple in Jerusalem. This is what Daniel referred to as the abomination of of desolation. And we read in chapter 13 about the fact that there will be an image of the Antichrist built and people will bow down and worship that. He's going to become not only the center of government, but he's going to become the center of religion as well. And so the religious Babylon will meet her end at the hands of the political Babylon. And it's kind of descriptive here. It, it describes him, him as a beast and he's actually going to eat the harlot. And you get the impression from this verse that there isn't a whole lot left when he gets done. Because it says he strips her naked, he eats her, and then he burns her. And so you get the idea that she's finished at this point. Why does he do it? Verse 17. Great verse. For God has put in their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God should be Fulfilled. I like that. God's running the whole thing. God's in control of it all. This whole revival of the Roman Empire, the desire of these ten kings to give their power to the beast, it's all according to God's purpose, and it's all fulfilling God's word. You know, people have come up and told me about, about individual Christians who, who uh, panic about this whole thing. And uh, you hear these stories about a, a Christian who may get, uh, you know, her uh, Social Security check in the mail and it's got 666 on it, so they send it back. Or, or, you know, they get their credit card and they got those numbers somewhere on it and they send it back and they panic about this whole thing. Listen, relax. Number one, you're not going to be here when this happens. And number two, you can't change it if you wanted to. It's God's plan. God has established this, and he's in control of it. And it is going to happen because he says it's going to happen. So relax and trust him in this. Just because you see it happening, don't try to change it. Just give God glory because he said it will happen, and it will happen. 
and he is in control. And one of the things we already see happening around us is this harlot system. And you can look around at the, at the, at the professing church today, and they're turning away from the truth of God's word. And 2 Timothy chapter 4 says, predicts that. It says they will turn away from the truth and they will be turned unto fables. And that's what we find all around us is the formation of this harlot system. And it's not hard to imagine when, when God takes his own people out of this world, that ecumenical movement that is, that is being pushed by the World Council of Churches is going to happen very quickly at that point. And so I guess the challenge to us today as believers is to stand on the truth of God's word and to be who he has called us to be, the bride, that faithful, chaste, virgin, waiting for the wedding day when Jesus comes back. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word today. And we thank you for the somber reality and reminder that not only is there the true church in this world, but there's the apostate church. And Lord, we don't uh, condemn the individuals in that who are being led astray, but we do condemn uh, Satan who's promoting that lie. And Lord, we pray that uh, we might be aware of it and that we might be able to reach out to those we know who may be involved in such a system to, to help them to see the truth of your word. And Lord, I just pray as we see these things coming to pass all around us that we might be... Uh, challenge not to try to stop them but to try to be the people that you desire us to be because we know that the end is near and we just give you praise because we can take comfort in the fact that you are in control and we thank you in Jesus name Amen